Welcome to Navara Live. I am Moya Lothian-McLean and tonight I will be joined by my comrade, my colleague, my friend, Ash Sarkar. I'm really loving your t-shirt, Moya. Um, I just hope that you are allowed within the terms of your contract to wear other things as well that aren't Navara Media merch. I am very much allowed. In fact, I'm wearing this t-shirt because I made a grave error today and discarded the weather forecast and wore something that was way too hot to the studio. And luckily, what we have lying around is some great new Navara merch. So become a witting boat spokesperson for our wonderful merch store. Today, we will be covering a range of stories. Obviously, it's local election day. We'll be talking about that and the voter ID chaos that apparently has been taking place at polling stations across the country. We'll also be talking about Tory scraps both in terms of housing targets and the fight that has erupted over the removal of them. Uh, we'll be discussing Apple's union-busting efforts in stores across the country. Shall we go to our first story? Today is polling day for many people in the UK. Local elections are taking place across Northern Ireland and in many local authorities in England. And if you want to cast a vote, well, you've got until 10pm this evening. But you'll need to remember to take your ID because brand new restrictions brought in by the Tories mean ID is now required to vote and only specific types of ID at that. We won't know how many people have been turned away until the Electoral Commission receives data from the polling stations. And even then, the figures might not be right. That's because some councils are using greeters outside polling stations to send voters home with ID without ID home. And they won't be keeping a record of the people who were turned away outside, only those who came into the polling stations and were turned away there. The government says that these new rules are necessary to prevent voter fraud. But between 2014 and 2020, there were just three convictions for voter impersonation. Reports on social media today seem to show that when it comes to voter suppression, we'll see a lot more than that. Lib Dem MP Leila Moran posted this. We've had reports by our tellers of people being turned away at polling stations for lack of correct ID, and that's just in my constituencies so far. Across the country, I'm worried this will be significant numbers and far more than the exactly zero people found guilty of fraud last year. The Green Party's Chris Williams also posted this. Just met a voter who was incorrectly refused to vote because his hashtag photo ID expired a few days ago, despite that being acceptable within the rules. He felt humiliated at his at Solihull Council polling station. And one Twitter user posted this. One of our tellers at a polling station has just let us know that 15 women have been turned away so far because they didn't have photo ID. This is going to be horrendous. Another said this. Two turned away from my polling station for inadequate ID, including one with a photo of a driving license. By the time I voted this morning, close open brackets, I would estimate I was about the 30th person voting, close brackets. And yet another Twitter user posted this. When voting this morning, I overheard a woman being turned away as the name on her photo ID did not match what is on the electoral register, ID maiden name, register married name. So some people will now need to bring two forms of ID just to vote. Obviously, we can't verify all these claims, but those are just a handful of the many complaints being made online. But the Electoral Reform Society, who opposed the introduction of vote ID, has been tracking cases. Its director of policy, Jess Garland, told The Guardian this. 
We're already seeing countless examples of people being denied their right to vote due to these new laws, from people caught out by having the wrong type of photo ID to others turned away for not looking enough like their photo. One voter turned away is one voter too many. The government must take lessons from the problems we're seeing today at polling stations across the country and face up to the fact that these new rules damage our elections more than they protect them. The Association of Electoral Administrators had a different take, though. By mid-afternoon, they said no major problems had been reported, though it added it probably wouldn't be told about individual voters being turned away. As chief executive, Peter Stanyan, said this. Polling day appears to be running as smoothly as usual, which is testament to the months of planning and hard work from returning officers and electoral administrators running today's elections. We hope the rest of the day continues along the same lines. You'll be pleased to know that the Vote ID scheme will only cost a mere £180 million to enforce over the next 10 years. That's according to calculations by the Electoral Reform Society. That amounts to £36 million for each of those three voter impersonation convictions that I mentioned at the beginning. Ash, is this an expensive solution to a problem that doesn't exist? What is the real point of voter ID? Well, it's an expensive solution to a very real problem for the Conservative Party, which is that young people don't want to vote for them. So the photo, the photo ID measures basically are set up to be a barrier for young people, working class people, and disproportionately people of colour immigrants to set up a barrier that makes it harder for them to vote. And of course, that's going to drag a lot of other people in as well. If you've changed your name for some reason, if you've transitioned, if your uh, photo ID happens to have expired and you're wrongly turned away, these are all ways of targeting and disenfranchising key demographics. So one of the ways in which you can tell this is that if you are a millennial and you've got one of those millennial rail cards, if you are someone who is 18 and you've got a travel card which reflects your age, that is not allowed as a legitimate form of voter ID. But if you are it, um, I think it's over 65 when you uh, qualify for your freedom pass, but please somebody check me on that. Um, if you qualify for your freedom pass, um, that is a legitimate form of photo ID. So it, it's just an obvious way in which the boundaries are drawn in a way to facilitate the voting of older people and closing down opportunities for younger people to vote. If it had been the case that this was genuinely about protecting the sanctity of the ballot, what you would have seen is a nationwide rollout campaign drumming into every single citizen of this country, you have to get a photo ID. This is how you do it for free from your council. But this has been snuck out in a way which is, you know, technically visible to the naked eye. But unless you're somebody who is super tuned into politics, and I'm talking about, you know, being a real obsessive, it's quite easy that it will have passed you by. So this is a profoundly authoritarian and undemocratic power grab. It is literally disenfranchising citizens of this country from being able to vote. And it's one of the most naked examples of party engineering that I've ever seen. 
But this was in the 2019 Conservative Manifesto. It was hardly remarked upon at the time by pundits. And in fact, lots of the centrists and liberals and moderates who are wringing their hands now going, oh, my God, how could this terrible thing have happened? Were busy in that year telling people not to vote for the only viable alternative, which was the Labour Party. So the way I see this is that this is obviously a undemocratic an authoritarian power grab by the Conservative Party, but it was aided and vetted by people who didn't want to see a socialist government in 2019. I'm interested, Ash, do you think turn, turnout in local elections is historically always lower than in general elections anyway, but what will happen here? Are we going to see a much lower turnout? And if so, should we really be using the local elections to try and predict the outcome of something like a general election, for example? I think that local elections can be a very bad barometer for what general election turnouts are going to be. Um, we had thought, for instance, that you would get an exceptionally low turnout for a winter general election like 2019. While it was you know, not a super duper everybody coming out for you know, the Renaissance World Tour kind of numbers, it was for British politics a decent enough turnout. So I think it's a hard thing to be able to map from one onto the other. And I also think the fact that it was a local election means that there was just not the same scrutiny because you don't have that long campaigning buildup where the you know different parties setting up their stores is absolutely dominating the news agenda. And you traditionally um, do have lower turnouts from those groups who are more likely to find themselves disenfranchised or a bit less engaged with politics. So I think it's hard to map from one onto the other. But I also think the fact that this is something which is only really being pointed out today speaks to some of the failures of, you know, if it seems like a misnomer to talk about, you know, liberal activist groups, but, you know, talking about uh, liberals who see themselves as campaigners for democratic norms and values, that they really took their eye off the ball with this one. There could have been an opportunity for protests, for, you know, strategically uh, putting out content which demonstrates the way in which young people are disproportionately disenfranchised by these measures, but that isn't something that's been done. Now, there will be a massive opportunity to do that at the next general election. There will be heightened visibility. And there will also, I think, be a lot more people who find themselves in the unfortunate position of being turned away. But that takes hard work and it takes organizing and it takes strategizing to drive up the issue salience of something like voter ID. And that grunt work isn't really happening. I do wonder, worry at the complacency that has surrounded this and the mere hand-wringing without any action, like you say, Ash. Should we move into our next story? Apple stores are slick, bright temples to technology, but they are also a global employer with a history of exploitation. In the US, shop workers at several stores have been fighting to unionize, allegedly in the face of underhanded union-busting tactics from Apple. So far, two stores have successfully unionized. Uh, now, that same spirit has come across the pond and reached store workers in the UK. Navarra Media's Labour correspondent Polly Smythe has been speaking to Apple store workers who are organising for better working conditions and protection against unfair disciplinarians. Don't know why I pronounce it like that. They are also demanding a bigger share of the immense profits their work generates for the company. And let's remember, 
Apple, like most tech companies, is extremely wealthy. In 2022, it became the first publicly traded company to reach $3 trillion in market value. Now, Tom is an in-store technician helping customers with their devices. He told Polly this. As a salesperson at an Apple shop, you can be bringing in £100,000 a year. It's terrifying when you start to examine how much money you bring in for the company. And our share of that is tiny. Despite making that much money for the company, starting retail salaries are only around £12.50 an hour or £14.50 in London. Now, in November last year, workers at an Apple store in Glasgow successfully unionized with GMB. And in December, workers at Apple's White City store also submitted a request for voluntary recognition with United Tech and Allied Workers, or UTOR. And that, according to workers, is when Apple's anti-union activity began. Apple retail store shifts begin with a daily meeting known as a download, where managers discuss company news and share the day's targets with staff. In recent months, these downloads have been repurposed as captive audience meetings, where management deliver Apple's anti-union message in response to a wave of worker organising within the company. That December, managers at an Apple store in London held a download meeting on the topic of trade unions. Jessica, another genius, the company's trademarked term for its in-store customer technicians and Utah member, said that in the download, the two store leaders told workers how they didn't think a union was right for Apple. She recalls the leader saying that they, quote, didn't want there to be a third party between you and us and that they didn't, quote, want the environment to get as toxic as it is in the other unionized stores. The store leaders took pains to say that they don't personally dislike unions. One of them was like, my parents are teachers, so you know, I don't hate unions, said Jessica. Jessica said that the store leaders then pr- proposed a what-if scenario where unionization could result in the loss of benefits. Quote, what if everyone in the union voted to gain one thing and because they wanted it, we had to get rid of something else that everybody else wanted, she remembers them saying. As a result, she said her colleagues are now afraid that joining a union could lead to the removal of benefits. The same technique appears to have been deployed in other Apple stores across the country. We've got more details here. At a store in the southwest of England, Genius Bar technical specialist and Utah member Mark heard a strikingly similar address. The download came shortly after the unionization of the Glasgow store and was run by his store leader and and external market leader, Apple Speak for area manager. It was framed as, quote, we just want to give you all the information about unions as we understand you might read about unions on the news, he said. Apple knew that people would be talking about unions and wanted to get ahead of that. The idea that unionization could result in the loss of benefits was heavily suggested. The leaders said that the workers' benefit plan would have to be negotiated upon and that a new set of additional benefits, such as access to a new online training course and the extension of medical and dental cover, which Mark suspects was only given in response to union organising, might not have been achieved as Apple would have been required to negotiate with the union before granting them. Other reported tactics include trying to ban workers from discussing unions at work and managers pulling individuals aside for one-to-one discussions. And while these chats may seem impromptu, managers appear to be singing from a common song sheet. Mark told Navarra Media this. 
The reality is that those natural conversations are all the same because they're just the same set talking points that we hear over and over again. I'll have a conversation with a manager who will use three weird expressions to me and I'll think, where did they come from? And it turns out that 30 different people have had that exact conversation today in another Apple store at the other end of the country. So there's a pattern of tactics that we see everywhere. UK workers are saying they've been helped in their unionising efforts by solidarity from Apple workers abroad. They've been speaking to workers in France, Spain, Japan and the US who've helped them to see through the corporation's tactics. They've also been helped by some high-profile leaks from the corporation. That's a story that last year leaked video revealed Apple's vice president of retail and, not a joke, people explicitly dissuaded workers from unionising and Vice were handed a leaked copy of anti-union talking points that had been distributed to Apple store managers in the US. Many of those appear to match what UK managers are reported to be saying to staff here. Now, this alleged union busting is taking place in the context of those widespread layoffs in the tech sector. Meta, Google, Amazon and Twitter have all cut hundreds of jobs in recent months. But as we discussed, Apple say they've managed to avoid cutting back on staff. At least that's the impression they've been giving. Workers in their stores, however, say that that's not the case. Tom told Navarra Media this. Apple will say that we're financially responsible and not doing any layoffs, but they take time and attendance way more seriously than they used to. If you're sick a couple of times now, you're going to be in major trouble. It's really upset a lot of people. We've seen a huge uptick in disciplinary action across the board. And Jessica added this. Apple doesn't want to be publicly making redundancies when they are so profitable, but then simultaneously all the stores started upping the amount of disciplinaries. Apple says our soul is our people. Where is that being reflected? Because all I'm seeing is managers trying to take people out like snipers. Aaron Cohen, a Utah organiser, also told Navarra Media this. Apple has been increasing the number of conduct and performance disciplinaries it carries out and intensifying these by giving the strongest penalties in every case they can. We believe they're doing this for three reasons. Shaving off staff numbers ahead of formal redundancies, creating an atmosphere of fear to discourage people from unionising, and to approximate existing union numbers by seeing who brings a rep along to their disciplinary meetings. Apple was approached for a response on this story, but they declined to comment. Ash... Are we going to see the start of tech unionizing that began with a wave that swept across Amazon? Is Apple next? And what do you make of these union busting tactics? I mean, first on, are we going to see a wave of tech unionizing? I think when you look at the kinds of job losses that you've seen from Meta, from Microsoft, and the overall climate of the tech sector right now, I think the answer is yes. You've got the perfect storm of the end of cheap credit. You've got declining consumer confidence, declining consumer spending because of an overall context of uh, cost of living crisis plus um, skirting perilously close to a recession. And what that will mean is that people will feel like they've got to fight for their jobs, their pay, for their conditions. And that's usually the kind of context which leads to greater rates of union member union membership and organizing. And I also think that, you know, this isn't something which is going to be separated off from the rest of the economy. So say you work for Apple 
And you see friends and family members who maybe work in the NHS or maybe work on the railways or maybe work in schools going on strike and securing pay increases. You'll go, well, hey, we can do this, too. So I think that overall, a climate of increased labor militancy and workplace literacy you realize how this stuff works. You understand the principle of collective bargaining. That is going to be something which then spills over in sectors which have had, you know, traditionally quite low union density. As for Apple's union busting tactics, I mean, this is truly the most typical playbook for union busting that you can imagine. One is that it relies on, you know, if not outright lies, then certainly half-truths. Sure, any package of benefits would be subject to negotiation with the unions, but that's not going to mean they get worse. It's not as if your union representatives in those negotiations are going to be like, oh, that dental cover looks distressingly good. I think that it shouldn't cover fillings or orthodontics and Apple are going to be like, okay, well, you know, Lisa needed braces, but I'm afraid that we can't just you know, we can't give it to them now. Sorry, it was because of the mean union. That's not how negotiations work. Negotiations mean that you get a better package of benefits. And I also think that this business of, oh, you know, we don't want it to be as toxic as other workplaces as we've seen. Well, that's the toxicity which is created by management. Unions aren't a third party in between the workers and the management. Unions are the workers and they're workers who've clubbed together to use the only power that they've got, which is collective bargaining at the threat of withdrawing their labor. And what creates the toxicity is management intransigence, whether that's on matters of benefits or conditions or contracts or pay, for instance. So framing it as something that the union has done is totally disingenuous and totally misleading. Um, and I think that the the um, disciplinary tactics, which you described, Moya, I think that that's a really important thing for us all to remind ourselves of, because we often think about the way in which corporate profits are supported and kept aloft by underpaying staff or through pushing through redundancies. But one of the things that we forget is the way in which corporate profits are sustained by squeezing each worker, by disciplining them, by making them feel afraid to take up their statutory uh, sick pay entitlements or their rights to regular breaks um, to make them feel so worried about losing their job that they end up putting company profits ahead of their own well-being. And that's one of, I think, you know, the, the dirty truths at the heart of capitalism is that when we think about squeezing profits and the way in which that comes at the expense of the worker, that happens at every single level. That happens from having a pool of unemployed labor to act as a sort of disciplining force. It comes from having really restrictive anti-trade union legislation. And it also comes from creating a climate of fear of discipline, which makes it easier to squeeze labor time from people. Um, so I think that that was a really timely reminder. I mean, I don't think that this threat of lost benefits is necessarily going to be something which hinders trade union organization. Because maybe in the halcyon days of tech companies being like, hey, guys, do you want a pinball machine this Friday? You've got one. You know, maybe people would feel a bit like, OK, well, management treats us well. I have fun here. I have a nice time. But as those kinds of perks are 
you know, being decimated from the tech sector. And you've got a much more difficult economic context in which workers are having to pay their own way, pay their bills, pay their rent, keep their he- keep their heads afloat. Um, that kind of sword of Damocles hovering over pizza Fridays really isn't going to do it anymore. I agree. What I'm concerned about is that there won't be pizza Fridays, but like we discussed that we've changed to the perks being healthcare. In fact, I wrote a report on this a while ago for Navarra about how workplaces, private workplaces are switching their perks to become things like health insurance, private health insurance, even in the UK or, you know, rented accommodation, et cetera, bonuses that you can put towards things that you wouldn't be able to afford in this current climate. And the more that these resemble Victorian one-stop welfare state workplaces as the actual welfare state crumbles, the more I worry that people will be wedded, too wedded to those benef- benefits um, to unionize. But the argument is very much there to be made. And if you want to read more on this story, you can obviously check out Polly Smythe's report on navaramedia.com. The link to that is in the YouTube description box below. And of course, the names quoted in this report have very much been changed to protect the identities of what Apple calls its geniuses, but does not pay in tandem with that label. Should we move on to the next story? Another dodgy workplace. On Tuesday, BP reported five billion dollars in profit for the first quarter of the year. And now it's Shell's turn. And the oil and gas giant is, surprise, surprise, rolling in it, raking in nearly $10 billion in the first three months of this year alone. That's the first three months of this year they've made $10 billion. And despite windfall taxes, as well as the fact that oil prices have fallen, Shell has still made more money this quarter than they did in the same period last year. This graph from the BBC shows Shell quarterly profits since 2019. The red bars are first quarter profits, and it shows just how much more Shell has been making since the war in Ukraine began. Remember, these are largely unearned riches, I would argue, all of its unearned riches, purely a result of soaring gas and oil prices. And we, the people are paying for them through rising energy costs and the knock-on price effects on goods. So what has Shell done with our money? Well, it has showered its investors with $6 billion in payouts and plans to offer them another $4 billion over the coming months. In February, Shell reported an annual profit of nearly $40 billion after tax for 2022, the highest in its 115-year history and double what it made the year before. And in the last year, only through those Shell has only paid about £134 million in tax in the UK, that is despite a 25% windfall tax introduced in April. And brace yourselves. I mean, actually brace yourselves, because last year was the first time, the very first time that Shell paid any tax in the UK for five years. Do you know why? Because between 2017 and 2022, government subsidies allowed the energy giant to write off its entire tax bill in exchange for investing in oil and gas infrastructure. Just to break what that means down to you, the UK will pay a private company to build infrastructure that will make that private company more money. From November last year, that windfall tax increased to 35%, but still contains a nifty little loophole that allows energy companies to claw back 91 pence in tax for every pound they invest in infrastructure. One argument against properly taxing the energy giants that is that if you do it, 
and they won't invest in renewables. But according to the think tank Commonwealth, they hardly invest anything in a green transition anyway. As I mentioned before, Shell paid out $6.4 billion to investors and it invested $3.3 billion in fossil fuel extraction, but it put a measly $0.4 billion into renewables. This is not a company that is serious about reducing its enormous impact on the climate. Ash, where do we go so wrong? I, I don't understand. Why am I paying a higher tax rate than Shell? I hate to break it to you, Moya, but the problem is privatization because this is the model of a privatized company, which is that one, it is more inclined to keep doing what it's already doing, i.e. paying out megabucks to shareholders and investing in oil and gas infrastructure than it is to try and shift its business model towards something like renewables. And B, when, you, when, you, when you're in this situation where you've got a straight choice between record profits and your customers starving and freezing, well, of course, you're going to choose the record profits because who's going to make you do otherwise? So that's the sort of long and short of it, of, of, of why we're in this mess. And I think it just goes to show why all of those really stupid arguments about why we shouldn't nationalize energy giants fall so flat. Because one of the arguments is, oh, well, you know, that's going to be an enormous cost for the taxpayer. These profits and shareholder dividends are taxpayers' money. It's workers' money and it's being paid for through the nose because of extortionate bills that we've all had to fork out for since the invasion of Ukraine. You've also got the argument of, oh, well, you know, doesn't the market know best when it comes to something like decarbonization and, you know, the market is the most efficient way of delivering the technological change we need? No, it's actually incredibly dysfunctional. We've had the technology that we've needed in order to decarbonize our economy in our hands for decades. We know that the cheapest way of generating electricity is, in fact, solar and wind and hydro. But the composition of our energy grid doesn't reflect that fact. And instead of having every single penny being put towards insulating people from a cost of living crisis and driving us towards a green and sustainable future where, you know, Bangladesh remains above water, crazy thought. We've just got the pockets of shareholders being lined. So it's not efficient. It's certainly not fair. And that's also one of the reasons why you've got this overall economic slowdown. Because if I'm having to pay hundreds of pounds a month for my energy bills, guess what I'm not paying for? I'm not paying for a coffee and a sandwich from my local calf. I'm not paying for a new pair of shoes or a nice dress for my friend's wedding. I'm not doing all of these things which stimulate the economy because I'm reaching into my pocket and I'm circulating the money that I earn. Instead, it's all being siphoned up by this corporate giant rather than going to where it's useful, which is supporting other people's livelihoods. I think that's so right. I think the thing that I'm always amused by is even from like a rapacious capitalist perspective, why would they not want to invest in sustainable, renewable sector, where there's huge amounts of money to be made in a, in the development of that. I just don't get it. Ash, do you have any ideas on that? I've got a theory, and I think it's to do with the model of rentierism. 
So obviously, when it comes to something like the national grid for electricity, uh, you can have private companies holding a huge amount of power, right? Because they're the ones who own the infrastructure that's generating the electricity, whether that's nuclear or solar or um, wind or hydro, it's a private company that owns it and then we buy the electricity from that. But what we know is that that's not going to be enough when it comes to uh, a, a green transition. You have to deal with what is heating people's homes. So that would mean installing things like solar panels on people's roofs where that's available. And you're suddenly taking away an awful lot of power and control from these fossil fuel giants. Now, so when they're controlling the flow of oil, the flow of gas, they're totally in control of the flow of money. But I think when you start distributing the means of energy production in a literal physical sense, that is going to be something which impacts their profits. And I think that's part of the reason for reticence. Also, it's, I think, um, short term greed thing, which is if you're the CEO of BP or Shell, what are you going to do? Are you going to invest loads of money for, you know, 10, 15 years in the future when someone else is CEO? Or are you going to invest money on in what already delivers, you know, record profits and is also uh, a declining resource. So the price of it is only going to go up. And when part of your pay is in stocks and shares, you're probably going to go for the latter rather than something which someone else can take credit for. Totally agree. Should we move on to somewhere else where there are profit margins that have crippled us and are too big to ignore? Britain is in the grip of a housing shortage. According to a report published in February 2023 by self-described non-partisan think tank Centre for Cities, we're missing around 4.3 million houses. No big deal. Uh, even if compulsory house building targets of 300,000 homes a year were reinstated, it would take 50 years to tackle the current shortage. And the undersupply of housing is an issue that is rightly dogging politicians. Last year, Rishi Sunak introduced that compulsory target of 300,000 homes being built a year in England in the proposed levelling up and regeneration bill. But in December 22, when they were trying to get that bill over the line, the target was scrapped. Instead, councils were given the right to build fewer homes if, quote, they can show hitting the target would significantly change the character of an area. Pure nimbyism. Now, NIMBY stands for Not In My Backyard for the Uninitiated. And NIMBYs are roughly people who object to developments in their local area that they perceive as unpleasant or unwanted. And the word has come to represent a specific faction in the Tory party who are obstructing policies like compulsory house building because they think that their home-owning rural constituents won't like the impact. In late April, Labour promised to bring back those house building targets if they won the next general election. Now, Sunak tried to defend himself by accusing Labour of attempting to, quote, concrete over the green belt and ride roughshod over local communities by picking up the targets that he dropped. But not all of his party is on board with that line of attack. The hot topic of house building targets is ravaging Tory MP group chats ahead of the local elections. The Times is the scoop on the leaked messages, and they're pretty interesting. Tory party chair Greg Hans kicked off the discussion by backing Sunak's take on the issue. Hans wrote that Labour's embrace of the targets could, quote, play badly in many places ahead of polling in the local elections on Thursday. But fellow Tories disagreed from the Times. <laughs> 
Minutes later, Justin Tomlinson, the Tory MP for North Swindon, responded, Why? People need houses to live in. Rising housing costs, brackets, rent, slash mortgage, slash deposits, close brackets, plays badly ahead of polling. Mark Jenkinson, the Tory MP for Workington, replied, Short-termism on housing will cost us dearly. He said that the government should strengthen contributions by developers to mitigate the impact of house building, adding, we have to be prepared to make the arguments. Simon Clark, a former housing secretary and Tory MP for Middlesbrough South, said, we cannot become the party of nimbyism. It will be hugely damaging to our country and our electoral fortunes. The Conservatives are meant to be the party of property-owning democracy. We should have resisted that, even if it meant relying on opposition votes. Nimbyism was name-checked again. Tomlin said that all politicians needed to back house building because it was the, quote, cornerstone of social mobility and opportunity. And Jenkinson said that the Tories should be the party of aspiration, adding, we need to leave nimbyism to Labour and Liberal Democrat councillors and MPs. Scathing. But it's nimbyism in the Tories' own backyard that they should be more concerned with. After all, Rishi Sunak admitted that those house building targets were essentially scrapped because Tory members and councillors didn't like them. We covered his omission in April. Sunak was being interviewed by Conservative Home Editor Paul Goodman. Only very recently, Conservative backbenchers drove a movement to weaken the housing targets so fewer houses will be built. And they would say to you, as a result of those changes, will more houses really be built or fewer? Well, I, you say Conservative backbenchers. I mean, I spent the summer talking to thousands and thousands of our members, our activists, our councillors. And I also heard the same message from all of them, in fact, even, even more loudly. In fact, everywhere I went uh, across the summer, uh, you know, I talk, you know, people wanted to talk to me about the planning system and how it was working. And I don't think there was any support for a system which imposed top-down targets on local areas without any recourse or um, you know, understanding of the local circumstances. Well, what are those local circumstances? Here's Sky News analysis from 2022. The purple areas of this map show places where population has grown faster or at the same rate as residential properties between 2011 and 2021. And this affects almost half of local authorities in England, meaning that demand is outstripping housing supply. Worst affected, as you can see, are areas in the southeast and London, like Dagenham and Barking. Now, the yellow parts of the map mark regions where housing has increased faster than the population in the same time period. These areas are disproportionately rural or in the north or richer London boroughs like Kensington and Chelsea. Now, Tory NIMBYs are usually associated with the likes of rural constituencies or richer areas. But we see from that map that these seem to have sufficient housing supply. So my question to you, Ash, is are NIMBYs actually stopping house building in areas that desperately need it, like Dagenham, which actually has a Labour MP? Or are there other forces at work? Well, there are other forces at work, but NIMBYism is one of them. And that's happening in some crucial areas, particularly the commuter belt. So one of the reasons why the Tories got their asses kicked in that Chesham and Amersham by-election was because the Lib Dems fought it on essentially a NIMBY platform. There was a big uh, house building project that was being proposed and lots of the people who are like, uh, I like that scrap of field where I walk my dog and it gets to shit everywhere, wanted it blocked. And that was the big main issue that the Lib Dems went really hard on and it worked. It flipped the seat from blue to yellow. But of course, 
that's not going to be the case for absolutely every constituency in the country. And that's not going to be the explanation for why there isn't sufficient housing supply in those areas where you've got really big population increases. Um, the reason why you've got big population increases in cities is unsurprisingly, that's where most of the jobs are. So if you're a young person and perhaps you grew up in an area of the country which was more rural or a small town, one of the things which is going to be really difficult is finding a job. So yes, you might live in a place which has got plentiful housing supply and compared to the rest of the country, it's relatively affordable, but your ability to find work is, you know, hamstrung because that's not an area where there's a lot of investment. And many of those areas, in fact, will have had the industrial lifeblood sucked out of it because of 40 years of neoliberalism. So then you're forced to move to these hotspots where because uh, houses and land are financialized assets, because they're not treated as the public and social good that they ought to be, you've got land values and house values absolutely rocketing out of your reach. So you're caught between a rock and a hard place. Do you stay in the place with housing supply, but few jobs? Or do you move to the place with more jobs, but a much tighter housing supply? And the way in which you would deal with that is one aspect of it is, yes, I think loosening some of the planning regulations in commuter belts so that you make building easier. But another thing would be building council housing, restricting the ability of people who already own a property to buy another so they can rent it out as landlords. Um, council housing for me is the, is the really key bit of the equation, which nobody, even these pro-housing Tories, like to discuss. Because what's the point of letting lots of new housing be built, say in Chesham and Amersham or Workington or wherever else it is, only for it to be snapped up by landlords. Um, that's not something which any of them want to discuss because, well, that's the set, you know, that's the economic interest that as a party they've been set up to represent. So you do have this interesting shift towards pro-housing Tories. Um, and one of the sort of big movers behind that is Onward, the think tank, which is now being headed up by, uh, you know, formerly of the Financial Times, Sebastian Payne. One of the things they talk about is we need more housing. That's why the young people don't vote for us. But they don't actually want to address the issue of affordable housing, that, because that would mean shifting housing stock away from private landlords who are able to leverage it to extract every last penny of profit out of their tenants and putting that in control of the state who hold it as an asset and therefore can set much lower rents. God, Ash, I really wish you were in charge of our housing building in this country. Next story. David Starkey is one of the UK's most well-known historians. Unfortunately, it's not just because of his work and covering the long ago past. The self-described conservative academic has been at the centre of several racism controversies in recent years and also beyond when I was around. And on the eve of the coronation of King Charles, Christmas for right-wing historians who specialise in the monarchy, he's taken the opportunity to do a little bit more racism as a special coronation treat. This time it's directed at Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who Starkey blames for, quote, a lot going wrong around the coronation ceremony. Why is that? Well because according to Starkey, it's because Sunak is, quote, not grounded in our culture because he's of Hindu faith. Here's Starkey talking to Andrew Pearce and Bev Turner on Thursday. 
I'm glad you mentioned the Prime Minister then, because the Prime Minister now has been, in my mind, detached or at least semi-visible from this in, coronation. Invisible. And I think one of the reasons that I think a lot has gone wrong, for example, why Parliament has not been properly represented at, at the coronation of a parliamentary monarchy, is because the government isn't interested, is not interested in the Constitution. You have a Prime Minister, I think a man of immense talent of extraordinary skill, but really not fully grounded in our culture. Now, I know that's a difficult and controversial thing to say, but I think it's true. And, and again, this coronation is going to highlight far too much, I think, our differences rather than what you what might What do you mean sense. by that? Do you mean in terms of religion? In terms of religion. That's not a dog whistle. That's a foghorn. Now, Rishi Sunak was born in Hampshire. He went to one of Britain's top private schools and he is the child of parents who migrated to the country because of the British colonial project. A posh boy Tory. Sadly, he can't get more grounded in British culture than that. But according to Starkey, being a brown, brown man who practices Hinduism, not grounded in British culture, smells like straight up racism to me. The GB News didn't seem to care though. In fact, they merrily promoted the clip on social media, but after an outcry, this tweet was swiftly deleted. Starkey is a GB News regular, and as we mentioned, he is also a regular offence merchant. Remember this from a 2020 interview with Darren Grimes. Slavery was not genocide, otherwise there wouldn't be so many damn blacks in Africa or in Britain, would there? You know, an awful lot of them survived. Um, and uh, what it what, what, again, there's no point in arguing against globalization or Western civilization. They are all products of it. We are all products of it. The honest teaching of the British Empire is to say, quite simply, it is the first key stage of world globalization. It's probably the most important moment in human history, and it is still with us. Its consequences are still on, and generally speaking, in most ways, actually fruitful. There are downsides, again, as the Brexit vote demonstrated. So that's how you go about tackling it. And as for the idea, as I said, that slavery is this, this, this kind of terrible disease that dare not speak its name, it only dare not speak its name, Darren, because we settled it nearly 200 years ago. We don't normally go on about the fact uh, that Roman Catholics, once upon a time, didn't have vote and weren't allowed to have their own churches because we had Catholic emancipation. And you know what? We had Catholic emancipation at pretty much exactly the same time that we got rid of slavery in the 1830s. We don't go on about that. Seen that split screen, it's a bit like the evil warriors of me and Ash, isn't it? Uh, now, that remark from David Starkey launched a police investigation and lost the historian a number of prestigious academic positions and honours. But it's bizarre it took that long because Starkey is almost also inf infamous for comments that were made during the 2011 uprisings that were sparked by police treatment of black communities in Hackney after the killing of Mark Duggan. This is what he said back then. What has happened is that a substantial section of the chavs you wrote about, at this point he's talking to Owen Jones, who was on Newsnight with him, have become black. The whites have become black. A particular sort of violent, destructive, nihilistic gangster culture has become the fashion. Black and white, boy and girl, operate in this language together. This language, which is wholly false, which is this Jamaican patois that is intruded in England. This is why so many of us have this sense of literally a foreign country. 
That was on Newsnight that he said that. And at the same time, he also cited Labour MP for Tottenham, David Lammy, as the, quote, archetypal successful black man, adding, quote, if you turn the screen off so you were listening to him on the radio, you would think that he was white. Now, at the time that he said this, Starkey's comments were described as career-ending, but they very much did not end his career. He's been across broadcast and print media ever since. He's published loads of books. He's been making more offensive comments, like saying, quote, nothing important has been written in Arabic for 500 years on Question Time in 2015, or campaigning to have the British Jamaican nurse Mary Seacole removed from school curriculums, or comparing the SNP to the Nazis, also in 2015. And now he's on GB News almost every other day. I feel personally quite betrayed by David Starkey because when I was really young, then I was a huge fan of his, didn't know better. When I was about eight, I watched, literally had the video of uh, The Six Wives of Henry VIII and I would watch it on repeat after school. I was very cool, as you can imagine. Um, Ash, why does someone like David Starkey still have a career? I was just smiling at the thought of, you know, little baby Moya watching The Six Wives of Henry VIII and being totally fascinated because I think that's the great, tragedy of David Starkey, which is here you've got somebody who's that rarest of things, which is a public historian. And they've got a platform and an opportunity to tell the history of this country in a way which engages and fascinates people and stimulates debate and makes, you know, little baby Moyers up and down the country feel a real interest and passion for history. And he's taken that platform and that trust and that opportunity and just squandered it on the most ignorant, offensive, crude forms of racism that you could imagine. Now, I hear what you're saying about going, okay, well, this should have been career ending. So why isn't it? I think in some arenas, it has discredited David Starkey. You're not going to find him fronting history documentaries for Channel 4 or the BBC anymore. But because we live in this horrible culture wars nightmare where an entire section of the conservative right completely unmoored from any economic offering to people has just decided that what they want to do is make older white people completely furious at the thought that there are ethnic minorities lurking in every corner. David Starkey is able to pivot to that kind of media ecology to spread a message which reinforces those views. Now, of course, I'm not saying that all older white people think this way, but that's the demographic that the likes of GB News are trying to make angry and trying to make them feel a sense of simultaneous aggrievement and superiority. And that's the space that David Starkey operates in. Because when he's talking about race, inevitably, it's in terms of cultural superiority. So, the British Empire was a good thing because it was the start of globalization. Uh, black culture, bad thing, chavy, rap music, patois, awful. Arabic language, awful, not done anything for 500 years. Mary Seacole doesn't deserve to be on the curriculum. What that is about is trying to engender a sense amongst people that all these minorities are trying to come here and they're trying to rewrite your sense of history. Um, but also at the same time go, and your history is the best history, right? Yours is the superior history. Now, of course, the study of history doesn't work on the basis of, of, of superiority, whose history is best and whose history is the worst. Um, you know, what this is about is telling a deeply, you know, racist 
national story as opposed to one which is potentially more inclusive. And even somebody who is a dyed-in-the-wool conservative like Rishi Sunak, who has had the most quintessentially English elite experience of having attended Winchester College, then gone to Oxford, then, you know, gone to work in the city, and then, uh, of course, becoming eventually the leader of the Conservative Party. That doesn't demonstrate enough of a connection to Britishness or Englishness in someone like David Starkey's eyes, because ultimately what's being hinted at there is a kind of blood and soil nationalism, where if you've got brown skin or if you've got a different religion, if you've got something which obviously marks out immigration as part of your family story, you don't really belong here. You don't really have a connection here. Now, not only is that a load of shit historically, because obviously for you know millions of people in this country, their parents or their grandparents or great-grandparents came here because of British overseas colonial territories. Even if that's not the case, you become part of a country by living in it, by, you know, forming relationships and having a sense of cultural attachment to the place where you are. Um, And, you know, the one thing which is encouraging for me about David Starkey is that he only has GB News now. And he'd gone from being that pinnacle of a public intellectual who had fascinated, you know, little year one, year two Moya or whenever it was, to now just having, you know, a blank face Darren Grimes nodding, uh, nodding along, you know, completely unable to understand what's being said to him. What a fall from grace. Fall from grace, isn't it? Um, but we have some exciting rejoinder news to cheer you up at the end of the show. We'll just come in straight from the RMT. Rail workers employed by 14 train companies have voted overwhelmingly for further action. Almost 90% voted in favour on a turn up of 70%. Around around, around 20,000 workers were eligible to take part in this latest ballot. So the RMT have a new mandate to strike. Thank you, Ash, so much for joining us, for lending your thoughts at length as well on this Thursday night. I do hope that you'll be returning my thoughts to me with interest, Moya. <laughs> the interest rates have gone up too uh, and thank you everyone for bearing with us this evening come back tomorrow at 6pm when Michael Walker and Aaron Bastani will be analysing the local election results I imagine it will be spicy especially if you read Aaron's piece on the Liberal Democrats today on NavarraMedia.com but for now you have been watching Navara Media good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media go to NavarraMedia.com support <laughs>